morning. I'm Mary Carol Schober, and I'll be reading your scriptures for you this morning. There's two portions, Exodus 19, 1 to 9, and Exodus 24, 1 to 10. At the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, this you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote, wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up twelve pillars corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord. I suspect if we were to do a poll of people in the street asking them what they thought was in the Old Testament, the popular answer would be the Ten Commandments. Though I further suspect that people, <coughs> few people could recite many of them. Perhaps thou shalt not drink whiskey or <laughs> go to parties or generally enjoy thyself. <coughs> But the fact that there are Ten Commandments is pretty well known, and indeed a bunch of other rules as well. In fact, I think most people would say that the Old Testament is generally about a lot of rules. Exodus chapter 20 lists the Ten Commandments, and chapters 21 through 23 are a set of laws that we call the Book of the Covenant rules to live by. But that says maybe, because this morning's sermon is not about commandments. The readings from this morning come from immediately before and immediately after this set of laws. And in fact, they provide the framework for how to understand the laws from Mount Sinai how we are to think of them. So come back next week if you want to hear about the laws. But this week is a preamble to and a postlude of those laws. Exodus 19 begins three months after the Israelites left Egypt and had come to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up the mountain and God tells him to say the following to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, and you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These words introduce the topic of God's covenant. If you obey
obey my voice and keep my covenant. Many people have supposed that Israel became God's people at Mount Sinai when he gave them these laws. And indeed many uh, remaining, uh, their remaining his people would be contingent upon them obeying these laws. But while the Israelites may have had their origin of, as a nation at this point, throughout the story of Exodus so far, God has already been referring to the Israelites as my people. Beginning with God hearing the cry of his people in slavery and making plans to set them free. Indeed, at the end of chapter 4 in Exodus, we find the Israelites believing Moses and worshiping the Lord. The point is that as the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, they are already God's people. How they respond to the revelation of God's laws is going to be very important. But that's not what makes them his people. That issue had already been decided long ago when God called Abraham and promised to make him a great nation. And so the laws that Israel is about to receive should be seen within the context of the promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants to give them land, to bless them, to bless all the families of the earth through them. That is to say that while there are going to be various obligations laid upon Israel at Sinai, these should be seen within the context of God already having made a commitment to his people and now acting to shape their life together as they become a nation. That is, relationship with God precedes morality one of the profound emphases of the Protestant Reformation. The gracious character of God's covenant with his people is reflected in the phrase, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The image here is of God as a mother eagle who cares for her young, particularly when they are vulnerable the image is fleshed out more fully at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses describes God's care of Israel. He sustained him in a desert land, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. The image of protection under God's wings is also expressed in various psalms. Guard me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. The priority of God's grace provides the foundation for what comes next. 
if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, which means more than if you obey the Ten Commandments, it has in view an ongoing commitment to being, being God's people, to obey him in whatever he says, whenever he says it. If you obey my covenant, says God, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. The idea is clearly that Israel has a special relationship with God, but I want to suggest that it is not simply a matter of God choosing favorites. Rather, it is that Israel will have a special vocation, a vocation within God's intention originally expressed to Abraham of bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. The whole earth is mine, says God. And for that reason, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. To be a holy nation is to be one that is set apart for a specific purpose. We speak, for example, of the various pieces of tableware that we use for a communion service as being holy because they are set apart for this specific purpose. We don't use them on Super Sunday or for any other meal. We use them only for communion, so they are holy. And so Israel was to be a nation set apart for a specific purpose. And that purpose is indicated by the term priestly kingdom. All the nations in the ancient world had a cast of priests who served as mediators between the gods and the people. And indeed, Israel too had priests. But this text speaks of the nation as a whole acting as a priest. A priest to whom? A priest to the other nations. The implication is that the way in which Israel was to be a nation was to be an expression of the living God to the nations around it. The purpose was expressed several times in the narrative about the plagues where Moses would say to Pharaoh, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses encourages the Israelites to obey God's law precisely so that people will say, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. In case this idea of the little nation of Israel having such an influence on its neighbors seems odd to you, let me say a couple of things. First, through the scriptures, the teachings of ancient Israel are arguably distributed far more widely than are the ideas from ancient Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, the various superpowers 
of Israel's day. And that's saying something, particularly in how much Babylonian science, in particular, science and mathematics has provided a foundation for us today. And second, I believe a compelling argument can be made to establish that without the Judeo-Christian ethic as it developed over the centuries, we probably would not have a document today like the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. The emphasis the prophets make, for example, on the importance and dignity of each individual, regardless of what family or class they belong to, to be cared for and to have access to justice, has had a profound significance in shaping the concept of human rights. So yes, Israel can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Interestingly, Peter picks up on this very text when he writes a letter to encourage a group of followers of Jesus. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, the followers of Jesus take over Israel's vocation to be priests in the world, to witness to the gracious acts of God who brings people from darkness into light. The second text that was read this morning from Exodus 24, after the giving of the Ten Commandments and the associated laws, here we read of Moses relaying all that God had told him and the people saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then a number of ceremonial actions followed. In other words, we have a formalizing of the agreement between God and his people regarding how they are going to be a nation. In chapter 19, we have the general description of how Israel was to have a special vocation in relation to the other nations. And here in chapter 24, we have Israel agreeing to the specific terms of this covenant. Moses sets up an altar offers sacrifices on it. He writes down and reads out the terms of the covenant to the people and they all respond saying, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And then Moses takes the blood from the animals that have been sacrificed and sprinkles it on the people. I thought this might be an appropriate juncture to have a, um, an, an illustration, <laughs> a, a, a practical illustration. <laughs> These foreigners are often, often quite memorable. Um, uh, those in the back, you might want to come forward uh, to get the full impact. Oh, 
Right? And you remember to bring that bucket of blood. Oh. Well, maybe we won't be able to do that this morning. Maybe we'll do that another day. You must admit, it would have been memorable, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> I suspect uh, uh, this act of Moses sprinkling the people with blood uh, was done before the words uh, pathogen and bacteria <laughs> had been created. <clears throat> but the point with the blood in the ancient world is that it signified life. Blood is the vehicle of life, and the blood belongs to God. Hence the dashing of blood against the altar on which sacrifices are made, and hence too the application of blood in the anointing of Aaron and his sons to their role as priests. And so by sprinkling the whole people with blood, Moses is doing that, anointing the nation to its priestly vocation. What follows next is very curious. Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel go up, presumably somewhere on Mount Sinai, and they have a covenant meal with God. That's what the text says. God appears standing on what looks like, quote, a pavement of sapphire stone. And they beheld God and they ate and drank. This is what you did in the ancient world and indeed many times today when confirming a covenant agreement, the parties get together and eat. Why do you think we have a meal after a wedding? <laughs> Promises are made, now let's eat. When Jesus was having his last meal with his disciples, at one point, he passed a cup around and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The idea of there being a new covenant is one that Jesus picked up from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. But when Jesus speaks of a covenant in my blood, he's reflecting the language of Exodus 24, where Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of the covenant. The story of Israel after the establishment of this covenant at Mount Sinai has its ups and downs. Eventually the nation will stray from the terms of the covenant being established here and many prophets will speak up and complain, calling on Israel to repent and reform, to recover her vocation as a priestly kingdom bring blessing to the nations. In looking forward to a new covenant, Jeremiah eventually will say, it will be not like 
the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And so the covenant that was established over 3,000 years ago at the foot of Mount Sinai gets reshaped and reestablished by Jesus about 2,000 years ago so that we today can be, as Peter says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people so that we might declare the greatness of God to our neighbors. This is our heritage. This is our identity. Amen. Thank you. 